What's up? Hey, Trey. Hey. How's everybody doing? Good? Kind of. What's up? What's going on? Yeah, it's a long week. I get that. I understand that. Cool. Well, if you don't have a study guide, go ahead and make sure you grab one. And if you don't have a Bible, make sure you, get, you have one. We've got a lot of work to do tonight. Um, so we are going to be concluding our series tonight, our two-week series called I See That Hand, talking about what it means to be a Christian. And if you recall, uh, last week when we started off, we said that when you ask that question, what does it mean to be a Christian, you're actually asking two different questions. Can anyone tell me what those two questions were? There was one, the essential question. Okay, what was the other one? And the evidential question, right. There's two separate questions we're asking. It's the essential question and the evidential question, right? And we said when we're asking the essential question, what are we trying to get at? That's what the essential question deals with? Right, like what, what a Christian is on the inside, what, what a Christian actually is. And when we're asking the evidential question, what are we asking? What a Christian does. What a Christian does, exactly. So the essential question, we're dealing with what a Christian is, right? And the, the evidential question, we're dealing with what a Christian does or what a Christian look, looks like. And so last week, we were looking at the essential question, and the answer that we gave to this essential question came straight from our primary text, which was Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And the answer that we gave was this, that a Christ, or the answer to the essential question is this, a Christian is one who has been given God's spirit and a new heart. A Christian is one who has been given God's spirit and a new heart. And when we gave that answer, there were two primary truths that we pulled out of that. Can anyone tell me what those two things were? You remember, we said there's basically, from that answer, right, a Christian is one who has been given God's spirit and a new heart. We said there's two primary truths that we have to get, get right for to understand the answer to the essential question. Right, you don't do anything. First thing is that this is something God does, right? What was the other thing? Oh, we used some big words. Does anybody remember the big words? It's an objective ontological reality. So being a Christian is something that God does. And this thing that God does is objectively true. And it goes down all the way to our very nature, to the essence of who we are, right? So when we talked about object, it being an objective reality, right, we, we would uh, put that against something being a subjective reality, where the truth of the matter is determined by the subject. When it comes to being a Christian, it's not determined by you or your feelings. It's not a subjective thing, right? If I decide to join a chess club, has anything changed objectively about me? Nah, I just decided to do something, right? But when something is objectively true, that means it's not determined about the way I feel or the things I do, but the truth of it is determined from outside of myself, right? And one of the examples we used is if you have an Auburn fan and an Alabama fan, what's the objective difference between the two? There really is no objective difference between the two. It's all subjective, one feels one way about a particular team and the other feels a different way about a particular team, right? It's all determined by the subject. But being a Christian is an objective reality. Not only that, but it's a reality that, deals, that goes all the way down to our very ontology or our very nature. Again, using the example of the Auburn and the Alabama fan, right? There's nothing objectively different, but is there anything ontologically different either? 
Is there a, like something within the nature of the Alabama fan that's different than the nature of the Auburn fan? No. If you take away, if you take away football, they're the exact same. But when you put the Christian and the non-Christian next to each other, right, there is an ontological change. There's something about the nature of the unbeliever that's different from the nature of the believer. Namely, that the believer has God's spirit and a new heart. The unbeliever has a heart of stone. The believer has a heart of flesh. The unbeliever is dead in their trespasses and sins. And the believer has been raised to walk in newness of life. And so we said this is something that God does, right? We're passive. This is something that God does on his own. And it's something that is objectively true and it reaches down all the way to our very nature. And so tonight we're going to be looking at the evidential question, right? We're going to be looking at the evidential question, which is actually asking what a Christian does, right? We've already established that being a Christian, right, is not the result of our actions, right? It's not determined by our feelings. It's not a subjective thing. But rather, or let me ask this. So being a Christian is not something that is determined by our actions. But that, does that mean that our actions don't change when we become Christians? Right? So, our very, so being a Christian, right, when we're dealing with what a Christian is, right, what a Christian is almost has nothing to do with their actions. But does that mean their actions are irrelevant? Right, absolutely not. Of course their actions are relevant. Now, we've already talked about ontology, right? Ontology has to do with being, right? And we use the example of a cow. All cows have four legs, but not everything with four legs is a cow. There's something about the cow and its very nature, its very ontology that separates it from other four-legged creatures. And so we've established that, right? We've established that there's something about the Christian that separates them from non-Christians on the level of nature, on the level of essence, on the level of ontology. But there are certain things a cow does, right, that are distinctive to who cows are, correct? Another way to think of this, if you recall a few months back in one of our Q&As, we talked about herbivores. What's an herbivore? Something that eats plants, right? Now, you have an herbivore, an herbivore eats plants. If I were to stick a medium rare, actually, you know, a rare steak in front of this herbivore, does it have a legitimate choice to eat the steak? 100%. It has a legitimate choice. It could choose to, to eat the steak. But will it eat the steak? No. Because its actions, right, what it does is determined by its nature, right? Its actions do not determine its nature. It's not that it becomes an herbivore only by eating plants, but rather its nature is what determines its actions. It only eats plants because it's an herbivore. Another way we could think about this, right? We talked about apple trees and orange trees last time, right? What actually makes an apple tree is something within the DNA of that tree, right? So if we wanted to get down to what is an apple tree, we'd have to go all the way down to the DNA, to figure out what an apple tree is, right? In essence, it's ontology. But there are particular things apple trees do because of what it is. Namely, it makes apples, right? If you had an apple tree that didn't produce apples, what would we say? It might not be an apple tree, or if it is an apple tree, it's broken. Something's not working correctly because by virtue of being an apple tree, by virtue of what it is, it's supposed to be doing particular things. So. And, and, and this is where it gets really interesting. So let's say we had an apple tree that was producing oranges, right? Could you have that? Probably not, right? But 
we would look at the orange tree and we'd say something in that DNA probably is making it produce oranges. We wouldn't go, well, you know, deep in its heart, it's actually an apple tree. Right? We'd say, no, 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 no. Your actions flow from your nature. And because of your actions, you're demonstrating that you're one thing and not the other. Right? It's not that you're an apple tree who wants to be an apple tree, but you just happen to produce oranges. No, no, no. Because you're producing oranges, that demonstrates that you're actually not an apple tree. You're something else. And so we have to nail this down, that when it comes to this, this evidential question and we're dealing with the actions and the behaviors of a Christian, we have to recognize that behavior and action flows from our nature, not the other way around. They don't determine our nature, but they flow from our nature. And so we've answered the essential question, right? A Christian is one who has God's spirit and a new heart. And by virtue of having God's spirit and a new heart, a Christian is going to do particular things. Or, to put it another way, in keeping with our analogies, a Christian is going to produce particular fruit. This is what the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians calls the fruit of the Spirit, right? There's particular fruit that flow from the nature of a Christian who has God's Spirit and a new heart. And so if you go to that next slide, we'll actually see what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians, and this is what he says, Galatians 5, 22 through 25, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, right? Talking about that objective ontological reality. Those who belong, not who feel a certain way about Christ Jesus, but actually belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so there's a couple things we can see. First of all, Paul tells us that by virtue of having God's Spirit and a new heart, you will produce particular fruit. I do find it interesting that when the Apostle Paul is talking about this, he calls it the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. And so what what that communicates to us is that he's not saying that these are like a la carte fruits, that you can pick some and choose some, and maybe I've got a little love, but not as much peace, and, you know, I've got some self-control, but I'm not super gentle. No, 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 no. What Paul is saying is that all of these things together make up the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, and that the Christian is marked by having all of these things together, right? Now, obviously, we're not perfect. Sanctification is a process. It takes time. But these are the things that you will see by virtue of somebody having God's spirit and a new heart. And so we see that, right, in Galatians. But let's go back to our primary text, right? The, text, the primary text we've been using, it's on the top of your uh, study guides, is Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And let's see what it has to say about this reality. And so kind of like last week, last week we all said it together. I'd appreciate it if we could all say it together out loud again, right? I think that's a good practice. And it'll help us to commit these verses to memory. And so all together, let's read this verse out loud. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so again... We saw from this text, answering the essential question, Christian is one who has God's spirit and a new heart, but we also see the answer to the evidential question here in this text. 
And again, God is giving Ezekiel this vision of the new covenant. And we kind of hit on this last week. We said that in one of the major downfalls of the old covenant was that it made demands on the covenant members that they were not able to keep themselves apart from God's grace. And one of the beauties of the gospel and of the new covenant is that the new covenant not only makes demands, but it also gives the means to accomplish those demands, namely through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in seeing, right, in seeing this, he sees that this new birth, this regeneration, this causing to be born again is something that God does. And then it also produces particular fruit. There's certain things you're going to do as a result of having a new heart and having God's spirit placed within you. And so the answer that I've given to the evidential question is this. If we're asking the evidential question, what does a Christian do? The Christian is one who follows God and obeys his law. The Christian is one who follows God and obeys his law. And we see that's taken straight from our section of Scripture. You can go to that next slide, and I've highlighted those, those sections for you. You can see, right? He's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. He's going to remove the heart of stone. He's going to give a heart of flesh. He's going to put his spirit within you. And then what? Cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. This is, what, this is the necessary byproduct of being given God's spirit and being given a new heart is that you follow God and that you obey his law. And so with that, with that answer that we've given, kind of similar to last week, there's two big truths we have to get from this, right? Okay, it's somebody who follows God and obeys his law, but there's two primary things we have to recognize or that this demands of us, right? If we're Christians and we're going to follow God and obey his law, there's two big things we have to grasp. The first is that in order to follow God, we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh or we have to mortify our sin. Let me get um, a couple of volunteers up here real quick for me. Let me get Aiden and let me get uh, Logan. You with the hair, the face. Let me get y'all up here. Let me get Santa. So the first thing is that, is that by being given God's spirit, right, and being given a new heart, this causes the mortification of our sin. This causes us to put to death our sin. Y'all can come, come up here by me real quick, okay? And so let's say, for instance, right, let's say that Aiden represents my sin, and let's say that Logan represents God, right? Okay? Now, he's not actually God. I'm not committing blasphemy, right? But let's say I have this relationship with my sin, and I like my sin, and he's great, and, I, and God does a work in me and causes me to follow him. What am I going to do in order, what do I need to do in order to follow God? I need to turn, right? I need to turn away from my sin, and I need to turn towards God, right? That's what it demands, right? And what happens if I don't put to death my sin, right? He's always going to be there. So maybe I turn back and I'm like, hey, man, let's hang out again. That was a lot of fun, right? Sinning is fun, right? And that causes what, what, I, what I constantly have to do, right, by, being virtu by virtue of being given God's spirit and a new heart, is I constantly have to turn from my sin and turn towards God, right? And so I have to keep putting my sin to death in order for me to turn towards God, correct? Right, all right, y'all can go ahead and sit down. Thank you. Thank you for these volunteers. Right? And so in order to follow God, right, y'all need to get this. In order to follow God, you have to mortify your sin. It requires the mortification of sin. Does that make sense? There's no scenario 
Right, you can go ahead and go to that next slide. Right, it causes the mortification. There's no scenario, right, where the Christian who has been given God's spirit and a new heart does not mortify their sin. Right, that is a necessary result of being given God's spirit and a new heart. Now, that's not to say that we won't struggle with sin. That's not to say that we are going to be perfected in this life, right? Because we're not. We recognize that. Scripture doesn't teach that, that you can be perfect in this life. But what it does teach is that there has to be a constant turning from sin and there has to be a constant putting to death the deeds of the flesh. There's a big $5 word that we use to describe this turning from sin and turning towards God. What what word is that? Repentance. That's it. It requires repentance, right? Martin Luther said, in his 95 Theses, that when the Bible speaks of repentance, it's talking about the Christian life being one of ongoing repentance, constant repentance, constant turning from our sin, constant putting to death our sin, mortifying our sin, and turning towards the things of God. If we are going to follow God, right, that necessarily requires the mortification of our sin, right? And that's not only brought out in our primary text, but we also have a whole lot of other scripture that lays this out for us. Um, let me get someone to look up Romans 8, 5 through 9. All right, Casey. Uh, Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Logan. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Josiah. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Aiden. Y'all, the back row is like holding the fort down. Colossians 3, 5 to 10. Joe, Okay. Right? We've already seen in our primary text right, that he's going to cause his people to follow his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Right? So we see that in, but in order to do that, in order to follow God, you've got to turn from your sin. Right? You've got to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And we'll see throughout the scripture that this is exactly what we are called to do as Christians. Uh, who had Romans 8? Is that you, Casey? Go ahead and read that for us. Awesome. So again, the book of Romans is a fantastic underst- like breakdown of what the gospel is and how it works. What its necessity is, what the implications and the applications of the gospel are for society and different things like that. And in this section of Romans, right, I love the way he starts off with this. For, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Right? Seems pretty... Self-explanatory. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And he says, you see that in verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. How do you know if you're in the Spirit? If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. What do we say a Christian is? A Christian is one who has God's Spirit and a new heart. And so if you have God's Spirit and a new heart, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if you are in the Spirit... Right? He says, set your minds on the things of the Spirit. And he tells us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is death. 
but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. Mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so, the point that Paul is trying to draw out is not that your actions make you what you are, but because of what you are, you're going to act in particular ways. If you've got a sinful nature and a dead heart, what are you going to act like? Death, hostile, not submitting to God's law. But if you've been given a new heart and God's spirit, how will you act? You will submit to God's law. It will be life and peace. Your actions flow from your nature. And if we have been given a new heart and God's spirit, we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We have to set our minds on the things of the spirit. Who had Ephesians 4, 17 through 24? All right, go ahead and read that for us. All right, so Paul is making this distinction, right, between the Gentile way of living and holy living. And it wasn't so much that Gentiles, because they were a different ethnicity, they weren't Jewish. That wasn't the issue. The, the issue is that being a Gentile represented being unholy, being separated from God. And in case you didn't know this, all of us are Gentiles, right, unless there are some Jewish people in here. I don't, I don't think we have any. But the idea is not that if you're a Gentile, you're wrong, Right? The point is, is that if you're not in Christ, you're wrong. Right? And he says that. He says, he says the way that they lived. Right? Futility in their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And due to their hardness of heart, hardness of heart, that kind of sounds like a heart of stone. Right? Hearts of stone are pretty hard, aren't they? But he says later, he says, you need to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Right? That almost sounds like the new birth. Right? That sounds like being made a new creation. Right? That sounds like you have to put off the old self, you've got to turn from your sin, put on the new self, and follow God. Right? That's the point that he's driving at here. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, created after the likeness of God because it is being remade in the person and work of Jesus Christ in true righteousness and holiness. So if we've been given God's spirit and a new heart, right, we won't live the ways that we used to live, but instead we'll turn from our sin and we'll follow God. Right? We'll put to death the deeds of the flesh and we'll pursue holiness and righteousness. Who had that next section of Ephesians uh, 4.25? Go ahead and read that for us.
Awesome. So this section, right, is part of the same thought that Paul is giving in the verses we just read, right? So that, that whole section, verse 17 through 32, is really all one big thought. But the reason I split it up is because he's kind of emphasizing different things in these two sections, right? He says, put away falsehood, right? That sounds like putting off the old self. That sounds like turning from our sin. That sounds like the mortification of our sin. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, right? He's telling us we've got to turn from our sin, we've got to put to death our sin, and we've got to follow Christ. And I love the way that Paul does this because he not only gives you the negative aspect, right? He not only says don't do these things, but he says start doing these things, right? He says put away falsehood and speak the truth. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, right? We've got we've to turn from doing this, right? We've got to turn from our sin and we've got to turn towards God and follow him. We've got to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and we've got to pursue holiness and righteousness. Who had Galatians 5, 19 through 21? Go ahead and read that for us. Excellent. So one of the things we see here in this passage is that Paul actually identifies particular sins. One of the difficulties we have when we talk about repentance, when we talk about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, when we talk about the mortification of our sin, is that we don't get specific. We say, oh yeah, I've got to quit sinning. But we don't actually define what sin is and say, no, I've actually got to stop doing that in particular. But Paul does it for us here. Paul in this section tells us Right? He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he begins to label them for us. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, anger, drunkenness, orgies, and like things, and things like these. I warned you as before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, we've already established that it's not the actions that determine your nature but your actions flow from your nature. And so when Paul's saying that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, the point is, is that those who do such things have a dead nature. They've still got hearts of stone. They've still got sinful natures. They can't inherit the kingdom of God because they have not turned from their sin and turned towards Christ as a result of being given God's spirit and a new heart. But for those of us who have, for those of us who have been given God's spirit and a new heart, 
We are going to stop doing particular things. We're going to put to death our sin, and it's going to be specific sins, not this, this sort of abstract, well, just, you know, sin. If it hurts my feelings, then it's sin. Well, no, that's not what Paul says. That's not what the Bible says. He tells us what sins we need to put to death. And so if we're going to follow God, right, as new creatures, as new creations who have been given God's spirit and a new heart, we've got to put to death the deeds of the flesh and turn and follow Christ. Lastly, who had Colossians 3, 5 through 10? Jungle Joe had that one for us. Again, Paul gets specific naming the sins, right? And not only does he get the specific, he tells us, put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness is idolatry. And then he goes on to say this, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming against all sin. That is, that is an inescapable reality. The question is whether or not those sins have been dealt with on the cross at Calvary or whether they will be dealt with by an eternity in hell. Sin must be punished. And on account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. And this is fantastic. I love, I love where he goes with this in verse 7. He says, in these two you once walked. And I can say that for every Christian I ever meet, in your sin you too once walked. That's true of me. That's true of all the adults here in this room. That's true of all of you. You too once walked in your sin when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. And going, skipping ahead to verse 10, he says, and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? It sounds like the new birth. It sounds like regeneration. It sounds like a heart of stone being taken out and being replaced with a heart of flesh, right? And because of that reality, right, because you have put on the new self and are being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator, you're going to put to death your sin, you're going to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you're going to pursue holiness and righteousness. You're going to follow Christ. And so that's the first thing. We see that the, to follow God requires the mortification of our sin. But I said there's two things that this answer demands of us. That following God and obeying his law requires of us. And that second thing is obedience. So again, we've kind of hinted at this earlier. There's a positive and a negative aspect to following God and obeying his law. The first is the negative aspect. We stop doing certain things. And the positive aspect, we start doing other things. Right? We quit our sin... Right? We mortify our sin, we put it to death, and we start doing what God says we should do. And this is not just something that we see in the book of Ezekiel, but this is something that covers the entirety 
of the scripture. And we got a lot of Bible to go through for this last section. And so I'm going to need everybody's help. So instead of just asking for volunteers, I might just point to you and be like, hey, you're it. Uh, So Exodus 19.5. I'm going to let Jonathan take that one. Deuteronomy 11.1. I'll let David, I'll let uh, Kaylin take that one because you're going to have to leave here in a second. Deuteronomy 28, 2. I'll let Ava take that one. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Aiden, you can have that one. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Logan. Uh, Matthew 7, 21. Josiah. Luke 6, 43 through 46. Casey. Uh, John 14, 15. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You want to read that one? No? You sure? Brad, you want to take that one? Did I? Okay, let me get you to take Luke eleven twenty eight. John, you want to take Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? James 1, 19 through 27. And then I'll take First uh, and Second John. I'll take those two. All right, starting in Exodus. The point we need to get is that for those who follow God, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God is premierly concerned with their obedience and that hasn't changed those who follow God will obey his law which is based on his character right so those who image God who are made after his image are going to image him correctly God is eminently concerned with the obedience of his people and we're going to see that demonstrated throughout the entirety of scripture starting in Exodus 19.5 Awesome. So again, Israel is out Mount Sinai. They're meeting with God. They're covenanting with God. And God tells them that they are going to be his treasured possession among all peoples. If, if they will indeed obey. God is eminently concerned with the obedience of his people. We see that demonstrated in the people of Israel. God is absolutely concerned with their obedience. And again, the beauty, right? He says that, that uh, therefore, uh, or he says, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples. If you obey, that stands true for us today. In order for us to be counted as God's people, we must obey. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's not dependent on our obedience, but it's dependent on the obedience of Christ. God is still concerned with his people's obedience. And that's why Christ had to perfectly uphold the law. And that's why those who are being remade in the image of Christ will obey his law. Moving on, Deuteronomy 11.1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God Again, the word Deuteronomy is a compound word, which basically just means second law, right? This is the second giving of the law. God had given his people his law, And then right before they were getting ready to enter the promised land, he gave them his law again, sort of reestablishing his law. And what does he tell them? Right? What does he tell them? He says, you shall love, therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. God is concerned with the obedience of his people. God has always been concerned with the obedience of his people. Who had, uh, Ava, you had 28 to 
Deuteronomy 28.2. Go ahead and read that for us. Right, again, one of, again, one of the, the, the distinctives of the Old Covenant is that the, there's actually Old Covenant and New Covenant. There's blessings and there's cursings. There's blessings that come with obedience and there's cursings that come with disobedience. Again, one of the major distinctives between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that the Old Covenant made demands that the people could not keep apart from the grace of God. But in the New Covenant, God not only gives the demands but gives the means to accomplish those demands. So he tells them, blessed shall you be in the city, or, hang on, I skipped a phrase. He says, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. God is concerned with the obedience of his people. And in order to experience blessing, it was conditional upon their obedience. That has not changed. The difference in the new covenant is it not only makes the demand... It not, only, it not only has blessings that are conditional upon obedience, but it also gives the means to accomplish those. It also gives the means to experience those blessings. And now, it's not conditional based on our obedience, but it was conditional based on the obedience of Christ, who perfectly upheld the law and fulfilled the law. And praise God he did that, because we see throughout Israel's history, they were unable to keep the law. They consistently and always failed to do so. But God is still concerned with obedience. And praise God that the blessing of salvation is contingent upon the, the obedience of Christ and not our own obedience because we would not be able to live up to the challenge. But we as Christians who have been given God's spirit and a new heart, by virtue of that fact, and we are being remade after the image of Christ, will walk in obedience. That is the necessary fruit of being given God's spirit and a new heart. Who had Ecclesiastes 12, 13? Go ahead and read that for us. Awesome. So, if you've ever spent any time in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a pretty... Um, so, my generation, we'd say it's a pretty emo book. I don't know if y'all are familiar with emo culture or anything, but it's a pretty sad book. It really is. Basically, the main theme of the entire book is it's all meaningless. Nothing matters, right? Vanity of vanity. It's just a chasing after the wind. Who cares if you get lots of stuff? None of it matters. And this is that, that verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 13, is, is the last verse in the entire book. And this is how he sums it up. He says, the end of the matter, or the end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So after looking at everything he had accomplished, everything he had done over the course of his life, he said none of it matters. You know what does matter? Fear God, obey his commandments. The wisest man who ever lived, that was his summation of all of life. What's life about? It's not all this stuff, because none of that stuff matters. It's a chasing after the wind. What does matter? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God is eminently conserved, merely concerned with the obedience of his people. All right, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Go ahead.
Again, we have from the very mouth of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. In evangelicalism today, we have a distinction between the law and the gospel. And this is a biblical distinction. The law cannot save you, right? It doesn't matter how much you try to make oranges. If your DNA, right, in the center of who you are is not an apple tree, are you an apple tree? No, you're not, right? If you make oranges, and no matter how bad you want to, right, no matter how bad you want to make apples, even if you do that without having your DNA changed, without having your essence changed, are you an apple tree? If I took some, you know, some apples and I duct taped them to the tree, does that make it an apple tree? Right? If I go outside and start walking on all fours and eating grass and mooing, does that make me a cow? No. Yeah. It absolutely doesn't. Nothing about me has changed. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We have to be careful when we're making this distinction between the law and the gospel that we're not saying, and that's why we throw the law away. Because that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, I'm not concerned with the law. Jesus didn't say, I've come to throw the law away because we're not under law, we're under grace. No, he even goes even further. He says, I tr truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is concerned with obedience to God's law. Right? Because God's law is a reflection of his character. Right? God tells us what is just, but it isn't just just because God says it. It's just because it flows from who he is. And Jesus is concerned with us as image bearers of God to rightly reflect the God whose image we were created in. And that means we have to reflect his character correctly. And how do we know what his character is? It's wrapped up in his law. And Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish that law. Not even a dot, right? Not even an iota of the law is going to pass away. Yes, we are not saved by the law. Anyone who is looking to their actions to save themselves is condemned already. If you're assuming, well, just by duct taping some apples to this apple tree, that makes me an apple tree. No, it doesn't. Something about your nature has to be changed. If you're going to be a Christian, it's not determined by what you do. It's determined by, by what God does, namely in giving you his spirit and giving you a new heart. We are not saved by the law. But Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He's actually concerned with our obedience to them. And he says, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, those who are really, really trying to obey God's law, although wrongfully, they were concerned. They were actually trying their best to do what God's law said, missing the whole point that it wasn't about obedience to God's law. It was about recognizing that you rely on God, first and foremost. You need someone else's righteousness because you don't have a righteousness of your own. But if you're not, if you think I can just disregard God's law and still be a Christian, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the opposite, actually. He says there are necessary actions that will flow from this new nature, namely that you will obey his law. Uh, moving forward, uh, Matthew 7, 21. Again, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not determined by what you do. If you just say, Lord, Lord, that doesn't give you entrance. But it's determined by what God does. But by virtue of what God does, what will you do? The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Who can do the will of the Father? Those who have been given God's spirit in a new heart. Right? Those who have the righteousness of Christ who perfectly did the will of the Father imputed to them. Jesus is concerned with obedience. He's saying the law is not going away. In fact, simply just coming to church and saying, Lord, Lord, that's not, that's not enough. You've got to obey. But who's going to obey? Right? What kind of tree is actually going to produce apples? Only the apple trees. Who's actually going to obey God's law? Those who have been given God's heart and a new spirit. Those who have been given God's spirit and a new heart. All right. Uh, Luke 6, 43 through 46. Again, this is so important. And this is why it's so important to read all of Scripture. Because if you just take those few verses we just read, right, in Matthew, and you say, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and says that you have to obey the law. And then later he says, the only people who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who obey my law. Right, if we just take those by themselves, right, we would go, so entrance into the kingdom of heaven, being a Christian, that's about what I do. It's about my obedience. Right, but... If we neglect the entirety of Scripture, we can't fault you for coming to a conclusion like that. But again, from the very mouth of Jesus, right? He's telling you where your actions come from. No good tree, and this is why I use the analogy of trees, because it's biblical, right? No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush, nor are apple trees or apples taken from an orange tree or oranges taken from an apple tree, right? And then in verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. So, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who obey my commandments. Who's going to obey his commandments, right? Who's going to produce good, Right? Those who have good treasure in their heart. But who's got good treasure in their heart? Only those who have been given a new heart and God's spirit. At your actions flow from your nature. They are, don't determine your nature. Does that make sense? Are you all tracking with me? Right? Jesus, again, from his own mouth, says it himself. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, right? Out of our very nature is what comes our actions, not the other way around. All right, uh, moving on. Luke eleven twenty eight. But he said, Blessed brethren are those who hear the word of God. 
Again, from the very mouth of Jesus, what is important? That we hear, not only that we hear the word of God, but that we keep it. Blessed are those who hear God's word and who keep it. But who can keep it? Right? Who can keep God's law? Who can obey his commandments? Only those who have good treasure in their heart. Only those who have been given God's spirit and a new heart. Actions flow from your nature. But because of what you, by virtue of what you have been given in God's spirit and a new heart, you will act in a particular way. Namely, you will hear God's word and you will also keep it. Uh, John 14, 15. Again, from the very mouth of Jesus, right? He says, if you love me, you will do what? Keep your, his commandments. That flows from your nature, right? Those who love God, right? We've already learned from Paul that uh, uh, those who are still in the flesh are hostile. They cannot, they cannot keep the things of God. But those who have been given God's spirit and a new heart, they love him and they do what? What is the evidence that we see that they love him? They keep his commandments. There's particular actions that flow from your nature, your new nature of being a new creation, being given God's spirit and a new heart. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Again, great summary of what the gospel is. By grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, right? We looked at this last week. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. And it's not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For he, we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for what? Created in Christ Jesus for what? For we are his workmanship, creating in Christ Jesus for good works. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been raised from your deadness and sin to walk in newness of life. By grace you have had your heart of stone taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. By grace you have been given God's spirit and a new heart. And because of that, you'll do what? God did all this for what? For good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God is concerned with obedience. That hasn't changed. He was concerned with obedience in the Old Covenant. He's still concerned with obedience in the New Covenant. All right, uh, James 1, 19 through 27. Again, James is basically just repeating what Jesus already said, right? He said, blessed are those who hear my word and keep it. And what's James say? He says, be doers 
of the word and not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that looks intently uh, at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looked like. And he tells us this, religion that is pure and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Kind of sounds like the mortification of our sin, right? It kind of sounds like turning from our sin and turning towards God. Right? All of Scripture is concerned with obedience. God is eminently concerned with the obedience of his people. Right? At the beginning of this section, he says, uh, he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Right? That implanted word kind of sounds like new birth. Right? Kind of sounds like the imperishable seed of the new birth. God is concerned with our obedience. And he tells us to not only be doers of, or not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. God is concerned with our obedience and that is consistent from the beginning of scripture all the way to the end of scripture. All right, and in these last two sections are 1 John and 2 John. I'll go ahead and read those for us. We've got 1 John 5. 3 through 5, and we read this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Again, John is just reiterating what Jesus already said, right? He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And John says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And he says his commandments aren't burdensome. That's not language we use in the church these days. Right? I said there is an important distinction between the law and the gospel. But whenever we talk about the law, it's always in derogatory terms. But that's not, that's not the way the psalmist talks about God's law. That's not the way the scriptures talk about God's law. That's not the way the apostle John talked about God's law. No, he says it's not burdensome. Now, if you still have a heart of stone, right? If you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, I imagine it is burning some. But for those who have been given God's spirit and a new heart, what does he do? He causes us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rule. By virtue of being given God's spirit and a new heart, he causes us to do these things. That's why it's not burdensome. It's not burdensome because our salvation is not dependent on our own obedience, but it's dependent on the obedience of Christ. And it's not burdensome because God gives us the means to accomplish it. And he tells that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Those who have been born of God. And he, tells, he says that. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Right? Those who have been given God's spirit and a new heart are caused to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Because of, what, because of the change, the objective ontological change that God has brought about in our very nature, his law is not burdensome. But he gives us the means to obey 
to accomplish what his law demands. And then lastly, in 2 John 6, we read this. And this is the love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandments just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. Again, he's just kind of repeating himself. What is love? That we obey God's commandments. And this is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. Consistently throughout the entirety of scripture from the beginning of the end, we see that God is concerned with the obedience of his people. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. Anyone who tells you that in the gospel you don't have to obey, they're selling you a pot of garbage. And you will find people who will tell you that. But the distinction between the law and the gospel, because the law reveals our sin and it points us to the holy and righteous character of God, but the law is insufficient to change your nature. Simply doing certain things is not going to raise you from death to life. That's something God has to do. But by virtue of having a changed nature, you will begin to do particular things. Namely, you are going to mortify your sins and you're going to walk in obedience to God's revealed law and to his revealed character. And this is the glory of the gospel. It means that not only are we justified, right? Not only are we justified based on the righteousness of Christ, but God has also give us, given us the means to be sanctified by giving us a new heart and giving us his spirit. And so let us not neglect God's law. Let us not neglect to mortify our sin. If we have been raised to walk in newness of life, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we've been given God's Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not neglect to do what God has called us to do as believers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you Lord, that in your gospel, you have not only, Lord, you have not only revealed to us our sin, revealed to us that we have transgressed a holy God, Lord, but you have provided the means of our salvation through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, and we thank you that all those who come to Christ Lord, no one can snatch them out of his hand. Lord, we thank you that you not only make demands on your people, Lord, but you give us the means to accomplish those demands. Lord, you demand of us that we walk in your statutes and be careful to obey your rules. But you have given us the means to accomplish that in giving us your spirit and a new heart. Lord, I thank you for all of these students. I thank you, Lord, that they can come here to this church, that they can fellowship with believers, Lord, that they can learn from your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would begin to work in their lives. Lord, and for those who have not experienced the new birth, for those who have not been raised to walk in newness of life, Lord, I pray that your spirit would begin to work in them, Lord, and you would cause them to be born again. You would take out their heart of stone, and give them a heart of flesh. Lord, and then in raising them to walk in newness of life, Lord, I pray 
that your sanctifying spirit would begin to work in them and that you would cause them to walk according to your statutes and be careful to obey your rules. Lord, give us the strength to put to death our sin and give us the strength to walk in obedience to your word. We thank you and we praise you for all these things. And it's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.